Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. What do we owe each other as American citizens? What are we as citizens, if if we truly believe in the experiment of self-government and it persisting, we owe each other something in that. And being informed is part of what we owe each other. It's a fundamentally unloving act. And I say this advisedly, dispatriotic act to not be well-informed. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan. So glad to be hosting for this special program. Thanks for joining us for Chris Steyerwalt, Broken News. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Village Squarecast is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Today's program features a very special guest, a former Fox News political editor, and gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the fear and rage-driven political and media climate we find ourselves in. As one of the reviewers of our guest's recent book said, rage, revenue-addicted news companies are plagued by shoddy reporting, sensationalism, groupthink, and brain-dead partisan tribalism. Newsrooms rely on emotion-driven blabber to entrance conflict-addled super users. Well said, indeed. Anyone who's been paying attention can attest that just about sums it up. So I think everyone will appreciate the winsome yet witty, affable yet candid Chris Steyerwalt. And today's edition of Village Squarecast is facilitated by Skip Foster, who spearheads Hammerhead Communications. And Hammerhead does PR, crisis communications, marketing, strategic communications, corporate strategy. He is a pillar of Florida's journalism scene and the former president and publisher of the Capital City's newspaper of record, the Tallahassee Democrat. Skip has spent his entire life in the newspaper business, as he says, from a lowly, lowly prep sports writer to publisher and many roles in between. So we're going to pick it up at full speed right where Skip does a yeoman's job introducing our special guest, Chris Steyerwalt. Chris is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on, of all things, American politics, voting trends, public opinion, and the media. He is concurrently a contributing editor and weekly columnist for The Dispatch. Before joining AEI, he was political editor of Fox News Channel, where he helped coordinate political coverage across the network and specialized in on-air analysis of polls and voting trends. Before joining Fox News Channel, 
Chris served as political editor of the Washington Examiner. He began his career at the Wheeling Intelligencer in West Virginia. Chris, welcome. Well, it's so nice to be with you nice people. Uh, and it's so nice to be talking to somebody who also started out as a sports reporter. Uh, that was definitely my first job. I was 17 years old, and it turned out that my father was serious about the fact that I would need a job the summer before I went to college, which I found very uncool of him, that he was serious about that. I did, You could have knocked me over with a feather. So in a scramble to get a job, one that did not involve wearing a paper hat with a hot dog on it, uh, nothing against hot dogs. But my adolescent uh, male ego would not permit that to happen. So in a panic to find a job, I stumbled into the local newspaper and against all reason, they gave me a gig uh, working in the sports department. And I walked into that room and found my people. I found my people that yeah. day. I found my, I, you know, I think of journalism as a vocation, not a profession. And the emphasis on the voce, on the, on the, the calling and not to be excessively corny about it. I found my calling that summer. I found where to be and across my career and in dealing with people, young people, especially, I realized how lucky I was to know what I wanted to do, to find out what I wanted to do so young. It's amazing how many journalists that ended up being, you know, on the news or business side started in sports. I mean, for me, it was just because I was such a kind of loser in college. It was about the only thing that I had a passion for. And so ended up starting there and then finally catching fire. But there's something about sports that uh, translates to real life. I don't know what it is. Well, and there's so many good words, right? There's so many good adjectives uh, and there's so many different terms. Is it a basketball player? Is it a cager? Was it a, a wrestler or a mat man? Was it a dinger, a tater, a homer, uh, a four-bagger? All of that stuff. And I think that, by the way, in journalism, a little bit of what we've lost is the sensibility that still informs a lot of sports departments, right? That this is a, a, a vocational job, that this is a job like a teacher or a firefighter or a police officer or whatever that like to, uh, if you'll permit me, even a member of clergy, this is something that you right. are, that you want to do. And that, especially when you start out, you're not going to make any money, right? It's uh, if, if I would have known how poor I was when I was starting out in the business, I would have been offended writing articles about life on the poverty line when you're living on the poverty line, but not aware because beer was only a dollar at Mulligan. So it was, I, I didn't know. And I guess I would just say with journalism, it is work that you have to love. When they tell young people, do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. It is a lie. It is not true. No matter what you do, you're going to, there's going to be a lot of hard work ahead of you, but it is loving what you do that makes it possible to endure <laughs> Right. All, all of that stuff that you've got to do. So you use the term catch fire. So that feeling that you have where you're like this, this answers the question that I had inside myself that I want to kind of be the skunk at the garden party. I want to kind of have the backstage pass to life. And I 
nobody want to be able to walk up to the mayor or the governor or the president or whomever and ask tough questions. Uh, that had instant appeal to me. Plus, the profanity and beer drinking was also very attractive to me. So it had it. Well, all. I wouldn't know anything about any of those things. <laughs> uh, what I do know is that uh, broken news. And then I've got to read this. Why the media rage machine divides America and how to fight back is a fantastic book. I'm trying to get this full frame. Johnny Carson would have turned and held it up to that special camera for just the books, but uh, this will have to be good enough. So, you know, everybody says they're going to write a book. You did it. How? What was the spark? How hard or easy was it? What did you learn? Walk us through how it happened. Well, I wrote, I, the first book I wrote Mm -hmm. was uh, a history of American populists. So it's popcorn history about American populists. Uh, and it was written around the, I think it came out in 2018, but it was written around, you know, trying to point out what are the rhythms in human nature and in history? Where, when have we been in periods of populist revolt for and doing it through sort of biographical sketches of these individuals. And plus, populist leaders are great because they're crazy, right? They're, they, they're, right. It's great because they're, colorful characters. So after I got fired at Fox, there were lots of offers to write books, right? There were a lot of people that said, hey, write a book, because the book that they had in mind was a dishy tell-all book, right? What they had in mind was, let me tell you what it was really like. The, you know, the the um, Anthony Bourdain's uh, Kitchen Confidential, but for cable news. And I... That that didn't that didn't suit me because of for a couple of reasons. Number one, I hate when the story is about me. I don't like that. That's not why I'm a journalist. I'm at News Nation now. I love if you can tune into News Nation uh, a lot of nights and you can find me there doing what I love. Talk about politics. Mm -hmm. You can go to the dispatch, find me writing twice a week about what I love, writing about politics, writing about me is yucky. So I didn't want to do that. And the other thing I didn't want to do, I worked at Fox for more than 10 years. And most of those years, I was happy in my work. And by the way, proud of the work that I had done in the political unit at Fox. I was politics editor there for more than 10 years. And our decision desk was the best in the business. Our politics unit was good. I worked with good people, Chris Wallace, and you know, up and down the line of good journalists trying to do a good job. And if I after getting fired, said, well, now let me tell you the real sordid truth about this. And I did that for money. That would be a betrayal of what I wanted to do. Because what I wanted to do, I'm very pleased to be doing this interview tonight because I have had to navigate on this book tour. I'm very pleased for the success of this book. Uh, not just because my children are smart enough to potentially get into expensive colleges. I'm pleased with the success of this book because it demonstrates people are aware of what the of the problem and the depth of the problem, and that's good. But it means that I've gone and done a bunch of weird interviews to do the book. And at partisan outlets, what people want you to say is, it's the other side that's really the problem, <laughs> right? And if I wrote a book that was like, here's how bad Fox News is, they'd have loved it on MSNBC mm -hmm. and CNN. And they'd have loved it in at the competition. But that would have been letting them off the hook because it would have been defining it down. Well, say what you will about it. I did an interview one time on MSNBC and the anchor. Basically, I got into an argument with the anchor because he wanted to assert that he was a better journalist than Sean Hannity. And I wanted to say, well, congratulations. You did it. You've succeeded in being a better journalist than a person who's not a journalist at all. 
And so I didn't want to write a book that let anybody off the hook. So I turned down the book offers and turned down stuff. And then a friend of mine who worked at Hachette, worked for Hachette for their Center Street imprint, came to me and basically said, what book would you write? Right? What, what would you do? And I told him the idea for this book, which is basically, we need to equip people in our vocation and we need to equip news consumers better, right? We need to have a frank conversation about why things are the way they are and what are the market motivations. I didn't come up with the term media rage machine, but that is not far off from the idea, which is your outrage, your contempt for your neighbor your your hatred for people who are different from you and think differently from you is grist for the mill it's what makes money right that's that is if we run our electrical grid off of boiling steam uh that turns the turbine that's the steam that turns the turbine for the modern media news media business model and that has serious negative consequences for us we are like the manatees in the discharge area outside of that power plant bathing and we got the algae bloom is getting too big uh because of the business model and i wanted to talk about why that was and i also wanted to talk about and again the corny alert is going to be on high for tonight because i feel like i'm 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 with like-minded folks here i have a special duty as an American journalist, right? There is no American journalism without Americanism. Uh, I enjoy these extraordinary privileges and and rights as a journalist in America. I owe that to the Constitution. I also, by the way, owe it to the million men and women who died at arms to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So I can't just go make a living by being a jerk. I can't just, if I can't go out and make a living doing things that I know are harmful, we need to talk about that, that vocational responsibility. Then the other thing that we have to talk about is how do we, as what do we owe each other as American citizens? What do we as citizens, if if we truly believe in the experiment of self-government and it persisting, we owe each other something in that. And being informed is part of what we owe each other. It's a fundamentally unloving act. And I say this advisedly, dispatriotic act to not be well-informed because you're not equipped to be a partner with me and our fellow Americans in self-governance if you're not well-informed. And that very, very often, we don't want to say the hard truth about what is going on with the audience, right? Because we want, we love them. They give us money. We like, we really like them. They're, uh, if any news nation watchers or dispatch subscribers are out there, I love you the most. You're uh, right after my kids, you're the best. Um, but we don't like to say hard things to people, but I felt like there were a couple hard things that needed to be said. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hear the word Arizona in there. <laughs> And also, I didn't hear the word deposition. So this book came after Arizona, but before. So after you left Fox News, but before the depositions have recently been made public, uh, before we really dive into the content of the book, how do those things kind of bookend uh, how this book turned out and, and how would it have been differently if it had been sequenced different between those two things? The germ of the book really came out of a column I wrote for the L.A. Times after I got fired. And why don't you give people the 20 second background on in case they don't know about the the the, in the light least favorable to the defendant? I'll say I got fired right. I think the day before 
So like the 19th of January, 2021. And my boss, Bill Salmon, the former managing editor of Fox, who ran the decision desk that I, that we served on, uh, he got fired too. And Fox had a cover story for it. And then in the depositions, it's come out that that wasn't, well, it wasn't a restructuring and it wasn't a retirement. It wasn't whatever. We got we got canned over that stuff, over the our correct call of Arizona, because mm-hmm. it caused problems for the network. Um, and the problems it caused with the network were with Donald Trump, but it wasn't really about that. It was a, the problem that they were afraid of their audience, right? And that the audience didn't like what we had done, which was be correct. We had They did not like for us to be correct. To strain an analogy a little bit, it would be like if you had a weatherman and he came out with the right forecast and the people didn't like his forecast. So you fired the weatherman because he was forecasting rain too many days. Mm-hmm. And nobody owes me a job. Uh, the news news business is a weird business. I've had papers close out from underneath me. I've seen friends lose jobs in restructuring. It's It's a real weird business. And I totally understand that. And nobody owes me a job. But uh, so after Fox fired me, I wrote this piece for the LA Times where I talked about, I found the story of the competition among newspapers in New York City in the 1830s and 1840s and how crazy the competition got. And one of the ways in which the competition got crazy was they were renting out steamboats to, to traverse the Hudson to get election results down from Albany as quickly as possible. So in, in the days before the telegraph, right at the, at the eve of common telegraphy. So to get the results down, they're renting out these steamboats and racing down the Hudson so that they can get the results back to New York to get them published, to be on the street first, to beat the competition. One guy, my favorite guy, rented out the steamboat and then fitted it with a printing press so that they could print the newspaper on the boat so that when they got to the dock in Manhattan, they had printed copies ready to go. So that's the news business that I like, right? I want to beat the competition. I want to be first and I want to be right. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out in the modern media model, being first and being right is a very limited value, right? It is of limited value. Fox News spent a lot of money to have the best decision desk. Uh, They didn't spend as much money as our competitors spent to have not the best decision desk, but it still was very expensive for them to to have all that it costs for all of the research and all the partnerships and all of the nerds. We were a high price tag operation, especially for a cable news organization. But in the end, it turned out that they didn't really want our product (laughs) because if the news was not what the audience wanted, I guess maybe I'd do a thought experiment. Why would a network that relies on narrow, tall support, very a, a cylinder, a very tall cylinder of support, um, but it's very narrow, how, why would it be in their interest to call an election? As a matter of fact, it would be in their interest to never call the election in the strictest financial interest. It might be that why not let, let it hang? Let's see what happens. Why would you call a race? Why would you tell people, well, it's over. You can go to bed now. Your team lost. If the good people at ESPN and ABC, Walt Disney, could keep the Super Bowl going forever, 
I bet they would, right? Well, we don't know. We'll have to come back tomorrow and keep playing. We'll play it again and we'll play it again and we'll play it again. And I desperately want America to find in part in part of the suite of solutions that we need to our news problem, uh, which include patron journalism, include uh, subscription, include a lot of things. I really want us to find a market facing solution that is sustainable for objectively fair, accurate reporting. We need that. That needs to be part that needs to be part of the mix. But you can't do that without reaching that bumper that I talked about before about American journalism. There is no American journalism without Americanism. And at a certain point, we have to say to ourselves as newsmen and newswomen, okay, this would be good for business, but it wouldn't be good for the country. This would ultimately be bad. And I think what happened to me, what happened at Fox, what happened after that was, you know, people lost their way trying to we have to hold these ideas in tension about, okay, what is popular and what is true, right? What is true and what is popular as, as you, God knows, you know, from being in the news business, uh, what is good and what is popular are two very different things and often the opposite things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in America, we want to believe that what's popular is good and what's good is popular, but very often that is not the case. Mm -hmm. And, struggling with those questions about what we owe and what our obligations are and how we should function as American journalists requires us to, uh, that's a very long way of saying, I believe in market facing popularly supported news as an essential component in what we're doing. We have to find a way to do it. And that's where voter reader, viewer, listener education is part of this and part of the work that yeah. you guys are doing. Yeah. But, but Market market solutions are not enough. There have this is not just a noetic problem. This is a problem of the heart, and we as journalists and people in the news business have to have bigger hearts. Well, so let's let's go there. Uh, I'm going to kind of state a theme a theme of the book a or the core theme of the book. First of all, you tell me if I got it right, uh, and that is basically that the media is generating engagement and hence profit by, as you say it, gener quote, generating powerful feelings, often fear, anger, and resentment. And so if you accept that, which I hope you will, then, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of pretty twisted. Um, <laughs> and my question is, is there any awareness among you know, the powers that be at, at various, you know, levels within the kind of news world that this is what they're doing. And I mean, I think about the car business where there are safety features built in, not all that are required by government, but sometimes the, you know, so there's industries that lead the way on doing what you said before I started asking this question, which is thinking about things. So, I mean, what is the awareness this is happening? And like three questions from now, I'm going to ask you about like the impact on the mental health of the nation from all of this. I mean, isn't it kind of like that kind of thing? So one of the things I talk about in the book is the social psychological phenomenon of fundamental attribution error mm -hmm. in which we can excuse things that we do or that people like us do that we find damnable in others. Right. So I use the example of you're driving in traffic. Are you your Florida or Florida State fan? 
Which one? Okay, Knowles. All right. So, if you're driving, we're in traffic, about to have a bad Gator driver, aren't we? Yeah. If you're driving in traffic <laughs> and you see a guy in a big white Mercedes, giant white Mercedes with a Gator head sticker <laughs> and the license plate Gator One, mm-hmm. cut off nine cars on the freeway and jam down the exit. What do you know? You know that's how they are. Right. That's just how they have. Obviously, he did that because they're bad people. That's how they are. But if you saw a guy with his car painted with Bobby Bowden's face across the side of it and a big Knowles energy coming down, doing the same thing, you would say he must have an awful emergency. There must be really a baby. Yeah. Yeah, He's got to get the dog to the vet or he's about to lose his job. I hope he's okay. is what you think as he goes. down, And. The human superpower, uh, people tell me dolphins are smart, and I'm sure they are, but I've never seen a dolphin build a hospital. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because they're doing blowfish drugs that now we know that they're getting high off of blowfish, but (laughs) the dolphins can't do that other than they don't have thumbs because the thing that human beings can do that other animals cannot do, we can put a vision into another person's head of something that doesn't exist and work on it together, right? We can make a, we can make a friend of a stranger and we can work together on a project. I don't know you, I've never met you in person, but you and I, I could describe a project to you. I could describe an idea. We think about the cathedrals of medieval Europe, centuries going by generation, generations go by and people know they'll never see the end of it, but they continue to work on this project. That is our superpower. Our superpower is the ability to work in communion with other people, in community with other people, and do that. We have this powerful coalitional instinct, and we really know how to to work it. But it comes at a price. And the price of that coalitional instinct is we are excellent at hating other people, right? Uh, Five minutes later, there's all kinds of psychological research on this. But five minutes after you form a coalition... Uh, the team pink shirt. We say, okay, we're the guys who wear the pink shirts. And we start joking like, oh yeah, well, team pink shirt. 20 minutes later, it kind of, we kind of mean it, right? And we kind of think that those guys wearing the blue shirts really aren't as good as we are. Mm -hmm. So the strong coalitional instinct has potent consequences because the strong, the best way to make a tight community is to have a common enemy. And so that is the price that we pay for that superpower. So tapping into, so the same phenomenon that news outlets use to make this money, which is that fundamental attribution effect, that's what makes the money, right? Don't you hate those? Yeah, I hate those other, those guys are the worst, right? Those guys are the worst. I hate the, oh, they're terrible. You're so smart and you're so good. And those guys are so bad. That's exploiting fundamental attribution error for fun and profit. Mm -hmm. But think of it this way. That same phenomenon works against natural remedies to the problem. Right. So if I say, huh, I don't know, what we're doing here may not be entirely wholesome. So let's say I worked at, I don't know, um, Ox News and I was I was working at Ox News and uh, I said, boy, you know, those guys at NNC, they they said that uh, they, they fact checked a report that we had. And they said it was totally false. And I kind of have some concerns about what they were saying. What would the response be? Oh, NNC, who are they? So this is a two quoque logical fallacy. 
Who are they to ask? How dare they ask? So what you find in these news organizations, and this was a, a, a big part of why I wanted to write the book the way I did, no one is getting what I would call loving criticism. No one is getting that criticism. So who, who let's put it in political terms, who is fact-checking and holding Republicans accountable? Democrats. Who is fact-checking and holding Democrats accountable? Republicans. Is anybody listening? Does Kevin McCarthy care what Nancy Pelosi's opinion of him is? He does not. It does not matter to him. It has no consequence in his life. As a matter of fact, the more she dislikes him, the better that is. That's power. We observed with Republicans what you know I call this the Palin effect. When John McCain nominated Sarah Palin, the former mayor of Wasilla, Alaska, and first term governor of Alaska as his running mate in 2008, Republicans didn't know anything about her. They knew nothing. Her name ID was basically zero inside the Republican Party. Nobody knew anything about her, but they knew one important thing, that the New York Times and Katie Couric hated her. And for a lot of Republicans, that was enough. That was simply sufficient. So do people know that they're doing the wrong things? And the answer is yes, but they know that they're not as bad as those other guys, right? Mm -hmm. They know that they're not, well, we may be that way, but at least we're not Fox News. Well, we may be that way, but at least we're not CNN. Well, we may be that way, but, and, and that kind of two quoque fallacy and that kind of self-serving reason lets people, they let themselves off the hook very readily. So are you saying that kind of the new, I mean, it sounds like almost the news world is as much a passenger as a driver of all of this. I mean, you know, I guess where does the responsibility lie? Because it's hard to come up with solutions without assigning responsibility, right? So this is fundamentally a demand side problem. Mm -hmm. This is fundamentally an us problem. I think just for a little history framing, what occurred in the United States basically from the bombing of Pearl Harbor in a lot of ways until the 1990s was totally aberrant in the history of information, right? So prior to World War II, what was the news media like? Partisan. As a matter of fact, the papers at the founding or shortly after the founding of the United States. Super were partisan. Yeah. What? Yeah. The Tallahassee what? Yeah. The papers were funded in the early days of the Republic, funded directly by the parties. They were house organs of the parties. Right. And they were funded by the parties because they were money losers, but it was in the political interest of the parties to fund the papers. And it was only the arrival of the penny press, of the only the arrival of, of new technology that broke through because it became more profitable. Literacy rates among immigrants, and there was a bunch of fact there were a bunch of factors that went into it. But new technology, cheaper presses, cheaper printing, cheaper paper stock made it possible to go away from this absolutely partisan model. If you read the newspapers from the election of 1800 about uh Sally Hemings about John Adams's uh, physical attributes. I mean, it's wild because that's what their that's what not only their readers wanted, but that's what their 
funders wanted. That's what their patrons wanted. So anyway, you go through and in the 1930s, technology fundamentally starts to change again. The rise of radio and the rise of the ability. It wasn't until 1935 when you could have the same picture. Uh, and it was the first story that this was true for was the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. It was the first time in American, in human history, where in almost real time, but the newspapers across the country, people could see pictures of the Dust Bowl and read the same words at the same time. We didn't really have a news cycle until the mid-1930s. So this is all of human history until the mid-1930s. No one had ever been like, well, what's what's today's big story nationally? It took a week for parts of California to get news of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. So anyway, the change in technology coupled with the unifying purpose of the Second World War. And we remember a lot of the journalistic ethics that we hold dear from guys like Ernie Pyle, Ernie, today's journalists would never do. They marched with the armies. They wore uniforms. They submitted their copy to censors. Edward R. Murrow, paragon of journalism, was letting the government read his copy before he was broadcasting it because of the war effort. And so out of that, though, came a sort of professionalization of journalism. And in the 1950s, 60s, and then we know the story about what happens with the Tet Offensive in 1968 and the Vietnam War. But you have for three and a half decades, basically, you have this bubble inflates where you have three major national television networks. You have a couple of wire services and a few big newspapers, and they they lead the national discussion, right? It's aspirationally fair but it's closed off. It's closed. It has viewpoint closure. It's not open to people of color. It's not open to women and it's not open to many voices on the conservative side. So it's sort of a left of center mainstream CBS news kind of sensibility and it becomes dominant and it hardens in this firmament over the country. And people who came of age in that time thought that was normal, but that wasn't what was normal. And when the disruption starts to come in the 1990s, really first with cable television, Mm -hmm. which is this powerful disruption, starting then, we watch the unraveling of a business model that was built on, it it was a, I will punch myself in the face for using this term, but the media ecosystem was built on local newspapers, Mm -hmm. right? So you have all these local newspapers that are providing the feeder stock for everything that's going on. The country is crisscrossed. Small towns have two, even even relatively small cities have two at least two newspapers, and newspapers are doing the job from coast to coast. And then the national news is powerful, but held in few and held in few hands, but covers relatively little space. In the mid nineteen seventies, something like two thirds of American households watched one of the three major TV network newscasts, but it was only thirty minutes. Right. And as Norm MacDonald used to say, it wasn't even a half of the hour. It was only 22 minutes because at the end, they always had a story about an elk trapped in a sporting goods store or something. Right. So <laughs> when people when I, I was born in 1975, when I was born, the year that I was born was not a super one for America, except for me. That was a big highlight for America that year. But other than that, 75, not a super time. At that time, though, there was a national discussion. 
because there were few voices, relatively speaking, that forced attention and discussion around a set of facts and a set of topics. What we were not prepared for was that as that old industry, starting with the local press and going up through big time national TV, that as the dinosaurs were felled, the chaos that would follow, and we are still sorting out the chaos, right? The When we talk about the loss of American manufacturing jobs and we talk about what's gone on with American man- and, and the sectors of the economy that have been rocked, I know our business is not the most popular one. But let me tell you, 53, 54,000 newsroom positions lost in the United States yeah. over a 10-year period. Holy crocono, right? Yeah. And in the book, we talk about, I'm sorry, I said we like I was a politician. I talk about in the book, what are the consequences for the local communities? What happens to a community that loses a newspaper? There are real, actual, measurable economic costs for a community that loses a newspaper. If nobody's going to the city city council meeting or the county commission, how is lending going to be? How less likely will the sheriff be to hire his brother-in-law? If no one goes and no one's watching, what's going to happen? So anyway, the long arc is a weird thing happened. And a weird thing happened in a lot of sectors of American life of being an apex power during the Cold War after the Second World War and a weird thing inflated. And we're on the other side of that by by a couple furlongs now, and we still haven't figured out what's what what's the way to to get out of it. So it all started with Pat Buchanan on the right and Bill Press on the left. Right. Crossfire. I mean, that was the. I mean, you know, because even CNN was pretty much straight news when they started and then it went down that road. So so talk about the uh, the Hawthorne effect uh, yeah. that you write about in the book. And then I have a, a follow up question on the Hawthorne effect. So I know if there are any actual scientists watching, I know that it's not the Heisenberg effect and everybody misunderstands what the Heisenberg effect is. I stipulate. But now let me get it wrong. So in the Heisenberg effect, we talk about how observing something changes it. The mm-hmm. cell that you want to watch in nature, you can't really, because by the time you cut the frog open and put the cell on the slide, you've changed everything about it. So the Hawthorne effect is in psychology, the phenomenon by which, and it's called the Hawthorne effect for a McCormick electric plant in Cicero, Illinois. And they sent efficiency experts. Those were the days it was teens or twenties. Efficient, so efficiency experts were the craze in those days. So they sent these efficiency experts and they were going to study how lighting affected uh, workers at the plant. How did it affect productivity? So they start the experiment and they some parts they're leaving the same, some they're changing this way, some they're changing that way. Well, what did they find? Productivity was up all over the plant. Every sector of the plant productivity was up. Why? Because they knew they were being observed, right? The Workers knew that they were being observed and consequently changed their behavior because they were in the experiment. So that's the Hawthorne effect. So why doesn't the Hawthorne effect apply to social media? <laughs> well, it does. It does in in uh, in probably many ways. But one way is if I know, and I talk about the Hawthorne effect in the book about how being observed... One great example of the Hawthorne effect is why are congressional hearings so terrible? Why are they so terrible? Why are they so terrible? Because you put the camera in the room. 
you put the camera in the room and you say, okay, now have a good meeting. Well, what is the Congressman cream cheese uh, from uh, East Wolf Knuckle? He knows something, which is if he can get a couple good zingers in there, they can clip that and they can send it back and his his office can tweet it out and they can push, push, push it out. And so he knows that he's being observed. There's a reason that the Constitution was framed in secret, right? Mm -hmm. They had to be accountable for the result about what was in it. But you couldn't have had one of the many reasons that the French Revolution failed was their sessions after the revolution about trying to form a new government. They did with the press and the gallery up there watching them do it. Right. You can't do that because you what I can't say, what a congressman can't say in public is I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying. But here's a political reason why I can't side with this part of it. Can you give me a little help on this? Can you help me out a little bit here and let me have this? And then and then we'll get it done. Private deliberation, as much as I'm an advocate of openness, right, and sunshine, accountability and transparency are two different things. And transparency is often the enemy of accountability. I don't need an account. I don't need a transparent Congress as much as I need an accountable Congress. And, you know, the only committee that I know of that actually works in Congress is the Intelligence Committee, and it's the only one that doesn't have cameras in it. Yeah. So that's a great example of how when you turn that lens on, right, when you put the lens, when you put the unblinking eye on people, they behave differently. They change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can uh, in the book, I talk about the phenomenon. Imagine it's your birthday or no, it's so it's, it's your, it's your brother's birthday and you're going to bring the cake in. Now, if nobody is taking any pictures, you're going to light the candles and you're going to bring it in and you're going to plop it down and you're going to say, there it is, Dale, enjoy, enjoy the cake. Here's the cake. You're not going to worry about it too much. Now, if you know that aunt Gertrude will be out there with her Kodachrome Instamatic, I'm just going to take your picture like, OK, well, when I go out, I better have my arm over the candles like this. And I better be making a, a smiley face when I go through the door because that's she's going to take a picture. But if you know that five people are going to have their phones out video recording the whole thing, you are now in performance the whole time. Now you are in performance the whole time. So these things and the constant streaming, tweeting, gramming, TikToking of everything has made performers of all of us, right? We are all performers. And in so doing, it diminishes our ability to be good partners and good citizens with each other because we're not able to, to do that part. So Hawth- the social media, social media is the Hawthorne effect, right? It is the, the panopticon that it, Americans feel the eye of. Right. So let's talk about the quantity of news that people are consuming you know if if quality and quantity were on an axis here what is there what is the relationship between those things as it feeds the rage machine well you know i do not know what the correct increment of new every person has a different amount of news that they need or should mm-hmm. have in the course of a day i think the advice that i give to people who aren't in the business uh, and who don't have special needs around it is this Go in in the morning, pick high value news organizations. Basically, you have to subscribe to either the 
Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, sorry, Washington Post. You have to subscribe to one of those two. That I think that we could, I could describe it a lot of different ways, but when you get down to it, you probably need to subscribe to a high quality national news organization, news, news outlet. And you all, and you can have the other sites and outlets. And so a high quality national news outlet and, and the highest quality possible local news organization. And you should probably take some time in the morning and be read in to be a good citizen. You should probably be like, okay, this is the time that I have. This is while I have my coffee or what maybe you like to listen to podcasts or whatever it is that you need to set out a little time in your day in the morning. Okay. I got it. And then, you know, what you should do. And this is something that newspapers had that we lack now in, in the, in the days of yore, back when ships were made of wood and men were made of steel in the days of yore, you could be done with the news right? You could finish like, okay, I read the paper and I watched the evening news and I am now done consuming news. And tomorrow we'll do it again and we'll try it again tomorrow. Now the, the suck hole into which you are drawn, if you like this story, you may like this story. If you like that story, here's another story that you may like. If you hate this person, you probably also hate this person. So keep on coming, right? You can find... so. Just in the same way that when you're shopping online, you're like, oh, actually, and you're, oh, I hate these algorithms. And then you're like, actually, I, I love, I do want to buy that thing. And that is, I'm glad you showed that to me because I didn't know that I could get a golf head cover that looks like the WVU Mountaineer. So now I do want that. So mm-hmm. that same power attached to news draws people in down into unhappy places where they stay. Um, but you should, for a normal person, you should be done reading the news at some point. You can turn the alerts off on your phone. The most of what 99.9% of what happens, especially in national news, you have no control over. It will not affect you and you have no control over. And if you sit in it and marinate in it, what is it telling you all day? Oh, you ought to be worried about this. Oh, you ought to have, have you thought about in, in the book, I tell the story of the, did you know that the Cavendish banana, the dominant banana cultivar? Uh, in the world is on the way out. Did you know that? The root fungus that is attacking the Cavendish banana strain, it's a disaster. And I will grant that if you live in Ecuador, the world's largest exporter of bananas, you probably should care. But guess what? For everyone else, we know how the story ends, which is, and there'll be another strain of bananas that replaces the Cavendish banana, just like the Cavendish banana replaced that strain. So it's a story that doesn't go anywhere, right? It doesn't do anything, but it invites you to be worried, right? It's like, have you thought about being concerned about your banana supply in the future? And a lot of the, and it, it's sort of like slow motion apocalypse. Have you seen the poll that was out this week that talked about America's uh, values in decline on key areas, patriotism, community engagement, faith, all these other things. And the only one that was up was money. Mm-hmm. What since, since the click wars began, right? So let's mark this to 2010, probably between 2005 and 2010, when the, the battle of the clicks began and the battle of the hyper segmented media marketplace began. Has the news been more positive or less positive, right? (laughs) Less positive. It's but people say they want, oh, I like good news. I'd like to have more good news. But what rates 
bad news rates, right? Bad news, tough right. news, scary news rates. Be afraid to change the channel. Be afraid not to look at this update. I, I firmly believe that America, we've had a rough first couple of decades of this century. We have had a rough, it, we've had rough running. Terrorist attack, the Iraq war, the pandemic, January 6th, the the hits keep the financial panic of 2008. It's been, we've, we've had all this rough road that we've been down. And I don't want to minimize that in any way. But honest to God, if I read one more story about meta crisis or poly crisis or how bad everything is, and what I want to tell these people is, this is the human condition. This is what ex- this is what existence is like. If it's not one thing, it's another. And you better you better gather ye rosebuds while you may, because life is tough. And uh, the, my Richard Thaler, the father of uh, behavioral economics, said, and it's a line I love and I cherish. He said, "We don't think people are stupid. We think life is hard, mm-hmm. and life is hard." And it's particularly hard if you're poor. It's particularly hard uh, if you have disability. Like there's all of these other things that can make it harder. But even if you've got lots of advantages, it's still hard. And what we have done is catastrophize the news so that if you stay in it, you are told constantly how bad everything is, right? And when I travel the country and I talk to people, liberal or conservative, progressive or nationalist, they are convinced of a couple of things. Things are terrible and getting worse, and the other side is winning. And I say to people, well, you both can't be winning. It's not possible that you're both losing the culture war because you're fighting each other. Now, there's some truth in the idea that we're all losing the culture war because we're corroding and degrading our culture more and more and more as we fight each other over it. But it's not like Progressives aren't sitting around saying, man, things are going great for us. Another uh, drag queen story hour. Check. We've done it. We here. Here we go. And what they think is that there's a religious there's a there's a theocracy forming in the United States that will soon crush the hopes and dreams of everybody. And then if you go talk to people on the nationalist right, they say that we're on the brink of Joe Biden's police state and that soon, you know, in the thrall of the Chinese Communist Party. And you think, maybe put the phone down, right? Maybe turn off the TV. Maybe go touch some grass outside. Maybe talk to a human being. And we have to, I know this isn't really the question, but I guess I'll say the analogy to the obesity crisis is real. So for 100,000 years, story of civilization was, can we get enough calories to stay alive and live long enough to reproduce? And guess what? The answer very often was no. Uh, No, you could not. And people following woolly mammoths around the Arctic Circle were not thinking about they weren't doing the, they weren't paleo for weight loss purposes. They were paleo because it was the paleolithic era and that's what they could get a hold of. Right. And so we, in the 19th century, having my physique was considered a mark of prosperity because only rich people could eat poorly, right? Sugar and processed foods were luxury items for the rich. Right. Poor people ate greens and they ate, uh, they ate close to the ground. And they were lean and fit. What happens? 
pretty soon it's cheaper to eat poorly than it is to eat what's good for you. And now how do rich people show off how rich they are by eating the most terrifyingly awful foods. You get a bunch of rich people together. Oh, this kale, the guard hairs, you barely, they barely, they barely prick my lips as I eat this hideous meal. It's so good. And it's vegan, low fat, blah, 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 blah. So Gwyneth Paltrow demonstrates her wealth and privilege by how poor, poorly she eats by my standards of poorly eating. So think about in news and information. So in 400 years of the printing press, we, but throughout, not just through that period, but throughout all time, getting enough information to be alive in the world was really hard. How can I find out what's going on? If Speed you live down the Hudson. That's right. It was really hard to do. If you lived in Tallahassee in, in 1880, getting reliably good information, even with telegraphy, reliably good information about what was really going on in Washington or what was really going on in world affairs, what was really going on in the economy, what was really good luck, right? And it was a high-end thing to know, right? That you would get an out-of-town newspaper or that there were uh, telegraph transmitted and all of that stuff. Those were high-end things. It was hard to do. Now, you cannot avoid it. I cannot honestly pump five gallons of gas at the Shell station without that damn screen coming on right. behind me that says, well, here's a way that you can turn uh, unbleached almonds into a health, like stop giving me information. I don't need any information right now. So we went from a struggling to get enough information to awash in excessive information. And so we de we've developed this sort of uh, cultural type two diabetes, mm -hmm. too much of everything all the time and an inability to self-regulate. <clears throat> I believe most of, most of human problems are not noetic problems. Most human problems are problems of the heart and problems of human nature. But this one is a noetic problem. This is a knowledge problem because just as we've had to retrain ourselves about what to eat, we have to retrain ourselves about what to do in an era of informational abundance. And we have to shift the demand. There's no supply side solution that will work. Ultimately, this is about education. This is about what we're doing right here, right now, is it's about talking about what's healthy and what's good for people in terms of what you produce and what you consume for news. By the way, at some of the gas stations, the second little button down from the right serves as a mute button for reasons I don't oh. fully understand. And so that's your little takeaway. Second to the right. I know. And yeah, I'll, I'll miss out gift. on Maria Menounos's, uh latest tips on what to what to watch <laughs> this fall. OK, I like it. So so you what do you say to those who justify their outrage slash rage by saying, well, hey, I'm just fighting to save democracy sure. or save unborn babies or the planet or my guns or the victims of guns. And so, you know, don't tell me not to be outraged and emotional about all these things, Mr. Chris. Uh, I am saving us from disaster. Well, the first thing, 
I would tell that person is it probably won't work anyway, right? Uh, probably won't work anyway. As I told, uh, as I as I still sometimes tell people, well, turnips have enough vitamin C in them that if you plant and grow turnips, you won't get scurvy. So if it's as bad as you say, you ought to just head up to the hills with a bunch of turnip seeds uh, and 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 make it from there. Because if it's as bad as you say, we're it's already done. I don't know why you're standing around here talking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't as bad as people want to think. As a matter of fact, the, the single most controversial statement I can make in some precincts of the American life today is that this is the best time and the best place in human history to be alive, that we have banished many of the problems that were the plagues of our species for, for millennia, that we have, we are freer, more peaceful, uh, more opportunity, more, uh, less prejudice, let all of the, all of the things that we said were making us unhappy are better, but people are unhappier than ever. So I would, I would tell that person that much of this is a self-inflicted wound. Um, and I would also tell them that the severity of the problem. So let's take global warming. Let's take climate change. Is it a, an extinction event for humankind? Maybe might be, I, I, I do not know enough to know, but certainly on the scale of what people are talking about, that in some of the some of the most alarming scenarios, it it is a, a speciation. It's a it's a species ender. It's a, this disaster for the earth. Okay, if that was true, how is being angry about that today and being angry about what other people are doing? How is that making that problem better? Right, and what these news organizations are profiting by is impotent rage, not real productive rage, right? So if what you did was, I'm mad about this, so I'm going to go out and do something. I'm going to go do something. Then that's a different story, right? If you are moved to go start installing solar panels on your neighbor's homes, whatever it is that you're motivated to do, that is a a productive kind of, well, maybe I'll put it this way. My boss at AEI, Yuval Levin, is a brilliant man. One of the things that he identified that always rings true for me is that the the fundamental emotion attached to conservatism is gratitude. Conservatives are grateful for the good things that we have and want to keep them. The fundamental feeling of liberalism or the left is outrage at injustice is outrage at what is wrong, right? So in the, I cannot believe that this has gone on this long. I cannot believe that you're doing this is what is motivates the, the desire for change on the left. And on the right, people say, but haven't, aren't you grateful for the good things that we have? Don't we need to hold on to these things dearly? The funny thing is we need both of those things, right? We all have to have them within ourselves. But we have to have them as a culture and as a society, too. We need a right and we need a left. We need outrage and we need gratitude. We need all of that. And we need that constant friction pushing back and forth against each other. And if you, I guess I would ask those people a question. What are you reading and watching? What are you listening to? What's your media intake like? And let's talk about how to get you 
some points of view to find out who your fellow Americans really are. Because mm-hmm. among all my favorite research in all of this is what do Democrats think of Republicans, who, who Republicans are, and what do Republican, who did who do Republicans think Democrats are? And when you read the research on how hilariously wrong the parties are about who's in the other party and what they think and what they're like, it's a laugh because you just see, oh, they're having an imaginary argument with an imaginary opponent. They're the people who they're fighting. They're not even straw men. They're ghosts. Uh, and they've made them. They our partisans and our partisan media has gotten so good at building these straw men. And we right on time. Well, you know, fundamental attribution here. Well, you know what they're like, and that's what they're doing. And you know what they're like. That's what they're doing. And we do not leave space, sufficient space, certainly, for this unescapable, inescapable truth. Our fellow Americans overwhelmingly want the same things that we do. Overwhelmingly want the same things. What do they want? They want a safe place to live. They want a job that gives their life meaning and provides the resources that their family needs to live the good life. Now, everybody has a different definition of the good life. And what it means to live the good life in North Florida is different than it is in South Florida, which is different than it is in Louisiana, which is different than it is in Wisconsin and Oregon and the desert and Maine. And it's all very different visions of the good, what the good life is, but it's still the good life. And I I mean, corniness alert number a hundred. If I do my job well, I can help, as a journalist, Americans understand one another better, right? I can uh, I can help Americans understand one another better, but it's easier and more profitable for me to have them understand each other more poorly, right? It's easier to have boogeymen than it is to have friends. Is it? We're gonna we're getting some fantastic audience questions, which I'm going to start after I ask you this one quick question, which is. It's just so surprising to me that so many smart people fall into this trap. And I mean, we see people on social media all the time that used to be known as the the foodie or the football guy or the Mr. Dilworth. And now they're just known as this just kind of relentless political hater how, how, where is the self-awareness? Where, why, how have people lost the ability to see that they've turned into this? I just call them zombies, right? That are just. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things is you've got to have your people, right? And we are a pretty lonely society these days. We're a pretty alone kind of place. And that loneliness manifests itself in a bunch of ways. The opioid epidemic, the increase in deaths from alcohol and drugs, the those stories are stories of loneliness. But what you describe is a story of loneliness too. A person reaches out into the wilderness of the internet and says, I have meaning. I am somebody. I am connected to something. I'm about something. And what we know is it wasn't the internet that made it that way. What we know is that our communities, our culture 
had started drying up beforehand, right? And we could talk about why, and we could talk about the rise of the suburbs, and we could talk about going away from multi-generational families and into nuclear families. There's a ton of stuff that goes in it. But the arrival of connectedness at a time when people were increasingly disconnected from each other. So that gives that person meaning. And for the florist who was previously a florist and a mom and or a dad and a nice person and somebody's neighbor who posted pictures of flowers that now is posting Dr. Fauci in behind bars, that the journey that that person went on was a journey to find a tribe, right? And they found a tribe. What is What do all Americans have in common? Not very much. There is not very much that Americans have in common. Thank God, because we live, we're like seven different countries, right? Florida is like two countries in one. And you have one part of Florida that's the capital of the Caribbean. And you have another part of Florida that is uh, the fast growing, fast evolving part of the deep South. These are very different places. And the genius of the American Republic is we agree that we will share together a system of government and some core values. As my old daddy used to say, opinions are luxury items don't have more than you can afford. And for America to work, we have to have a limited number of opinions about what other yeah. people ought to do. And then we ought to, and then we ought to leave it there. So let's say you live in Oregon. <clears throat> And you're a progressive. What do you know about Florida? And what do you know about Ron DeSantis? Well, he's the devil and Florida is hell on earth. And they're, they're carting drag performers away and putting them in prison. And don't you know that's what Florida's like? Now, unless you have a grandchild in a Florida public school, how Florida teaches sex ed doesn't really have anything to do with how people live in Oregon. Conversely, if you live in Florida, what do you care if the drag if they have drag queens reading stories at the, you know, at the Eugene, Oregon Public Library? You don't even have to go to that if you live in Eugene, Oregon. But these are culture war stories that the media can pluck out and say, have you heard about this? Have you thought about being outraged and furious and angry about what strangers are doing 3,000 miles away from you? People say, well, that would that would feel good. And how does that compare to our system? And by the way, our nature is arranged around the idea that we should be most engaged with what is closest to us, right? I should know the most about and be the most engaged with my family and what's going on where I live, and then my neighborhood, and then my city, and then my county, and then my district, and then my yeah. state, and then finally at the end. Okay, that all having been accomplished, what's going on with the federal government? But instead, in order to find a way to give all of the the otherwise disconnected people common cause with each other, you need big unifying boogeymen. We've turned the presidency into a culture war avatar game, right? This is my man. As long as Joe Biden's president... America is living in darkness, and only when he is removed will it be good again. And I love the right track, wrong track numbers. If you look at the Gallup right track, wrong track numbers, it always stays low. The average has stayed low since the middle of the aughts, but 30% of Americans say it's going the right track. 
then you pull it out by partisanship and you know what you see? The day before the uh, 2020 election, Republicans say things are going pretty well. Democrats say it's terrible. The next day, one day later, flip it. Now, Republicans say, oh, things are, are terrible now right. because of one which because of which 70 something year old guy from the mid Atlantic region of the United States has been elected president. So that all is about why your friend, the florist or your friend, the baker or somebody, your your aunt Tilly got weird is because the only thing that you can tap into everybody around the country with is this, you know, argle bargle national political news. And that doesn't even really fit. So you've got to stretch it to make it fit. Right. Audience question. Have either of you felt pressure to be biased in your career? Have you been pressured to change your words for the purpose of giving a different impression than what the story is really about? Sure. Uh, All the time. All the time. It's a not from corporate overlords in my case. But people you talk to for stories always wanted to highlight the good and ignore the bad. I mean, if that can be defined as bias, is that a fair statement for you? How, how about hostile media effect? Uh, yeah. the well-proven, well-proven psychological phenomenon by which, and the first case of this was uh, the Lee Ross did at Stanford University in the early 1980s during the uh, Lebanese Civil War. And there was a massacre uh, that the Arab forces blamed the Israelis for. They said that the, the Israelis were either responsible for or had abetted, had looked the other way for the slaughter of a bunch of Druze. And so the researchers took Stanford students and said, who do you side with here, the Israelis or the Arabs on this? So they divided them into the two different groups. And then they showed them the same news report, the same exact news report. And the people came out and after it was done, they said, okay, take the survey. Was it biased against your side? Yes. It was absolutely biased against my side. Uh, would the reporter have forgiven the same things that they condemned your side for if the other side had done it? Absolutely. Would have looked the other way, totally in the tank. And the numbers were off the charts. And it has been proven again and again and again. The same two people or two different people can watch the same report. And they will both conclude that it was hostile toward them and friendly toward the other side. And so people complaining about what I write and what I do, it's constant, right? Yeah. And th what's the first bias in media? I have to write a column tomorrow. I, or Friday by 11 a.m., because I always push my deadline. But I will not, by definition, I will not write about most things. Almost, I will, I will write about almost none of anything that I would just write about one thing. And there's thousands of things that I could write about. I could write about Cavendish bananas, or I could write about drag queen story. I could write about anything that I wanted, but I'll only write about one thing. So that means my first bias is excluding 99.99999% of everything else. And when I write it, someone will email me and you know what they'll say? Well, how come you didn't write about this? Right. And I don't write them back because, come on. But if I did, you know what I would say? Because I wanted to. That's what I yeah. wanted to do. So I did it. In my life, have I ever been pressured to do wrong uh, for the wrong reasons by an editor? 
maybe I could think of a time here or there where it felt a little dicey, but you can't like the vocational part of this work is the important. That's that's why it's important. Um, as my old daddy used to say, the time to decide whether or not you want to kill a deer is before you go hunting. If you want to be a journalist, you know that you're going to be unpopular sometimes, and you might even have to lose your job over it. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's the price of poker. So here's another question. What is your opinion on market efficiency with respect to the news media? News conglomerates such as CNN seem to be changing course based on ratings and preference preferences. Will journalists respond to market incentives? So it kind of sounds like they're asking, is it possible that this will just flame out and that people will kind of not kind of say, Hey, I just can't do this anymore. The rage is killing me. I need to change, you know, my consumption and that the market will actually correct this somehow. Is that possible? Well, all I can tell you is find news nation on your cable dial and tune in and see what we've got. No, um, no. And I do believe that aspirationally fair kind of straight news reporting has to be and can be part of what we're doing. But CNN is not responding to market pressures. What's going on at CNN is a more complicated story. The new owners at Discovery did not don't like CNN had been a straight news product and had lived and died by bang booms and busts in the ratings. If America goes to war, great CNN ratings Perfecto. Things are boring. People aren't watching CNN because CNN's covering, focusing on breaking news. So do you remember the missing Malaysian airliner? Oh, yeah. Richard well, Quest. C yep. CNN went all in. Hal Raines at the New York Times developed a term uh, to flood the zone. We're going to flood the zone, which means when we have a big story that's, go that's going hot, we are going to push all of our resources into it until we fully slake the audience's thirst for this story. And so CNN adopted that approach. Here we go. We're going to go all in on the story. Well, right after the Malaysian airliner, Donald Trump became the Malaysian airliner, right? So mm -hmm. here we're going to cover down everything Donald Trump does. And it'll be overwhelmingly negative coverage, but it will be overwhelming coverage. And it actually worked better for CNN in a profit from a profit standpoint than the other thing did. Now their parent company does not want to have, there are toxic assets, I believe was the term from the 2008 financial crisis. And even if profitable, it could be a toxic asset and not fit in with the company's other standards. If it's sort of like, if you're Disney, you can, if you're a Disney, you can't have ABC news go in certain directions because that's not good for the overall brand. So I think that's part of it. I hope they succeed at CNN. I think it's very hard, you know, at Fox right now, they're, they, they've been trying to deal with Trump differently than they did in 2016. And you heard a lot of like, well, we're going to take a tougher line. We're going to do this stuff. Well, the other night, Sean Hannity had Donald Trump on for an easy breezy, long interview to talk about what everyone talked about and why Ron DeSantis is the worst. And he got no pushback and he went on there. That was not in Fox's long-term corporate interest, but it certainly wasn't Sean Hannity's interest for his ratings that night. So yeah. I think the questioner points to a good thing, which is if the producers and if the anchors and, and the hosts 
are told on the one hand, you cannot lose ratings. You have to maintain ratings. And then at the same time are told, but do wholesome good work that is fair and whatever. You're sending them a mixed message because what mm-hmm. you have to be willing to say is it is eat your more, vegetables, but get fat. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And you yeah. you nailed it. You you cannot do both at once. You can and at the dispatch and I at News Nation, I think that's part of the goal, which is making some decisions to forego the one of the founders. I, I love this story one of the founders of KKR private equity when he surprised the whole financial world and quit in 1987 at their annual investors meeting and he quit and he said he did not like what was happening in he had been the innovator of private equity right and he had done this work and he watched what was happening and it had gone from taking distressed properties and turning them into healthy businesses back into healthy businesses and it went to a churn and burn strip them down sell them for parts fire mm-hmm. everybody and do all this stuff and he said in his farewell remarks an ethic without sacrifice is no ethic mm-hmm. And so in the news business, we have to be willing to forego some things in order to uphold the standards of decency, of Americanism, and all that other stuff. And there's if we lie to – we in, in my business, it's very tempting. People always say, cake and eat it too. You can be both ethical, moral, patriotic, and make unlimited amounts of money. That's not true. Sacrifice is necessary. Yeah. So as we near the end of our time, I want to focus on prescriptions, not the kind that my old readers used to call and say they were going to cancel because they were uh, mad at me with something. Yeah. Yeah. Happened every once in a while. So <laughs> my, 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 uh, I'm worried that the prescriptions at the end of the book, which are smart and I think, you know, worthwhile still might not be up to this task uh, uh, of dealing with this problem. So just by paint us kind of a grand picture, maybe even over the long term of, of what, you know, really getting back or at least moving in the right direction on this uh, looks like at some sort of scale. Yeah, I know we can all make decisions on, I love your routine of the morning and the afternoon and controlling what we intake and those kind of things, but there's still huge issues with the profit motive and all of these kind of things. Uh, how do we get out? Well, maybe we won't. The hard truth that Americans don't like is that sometimes things go away. I have learned, speaking of Yuval Levin, I have learned to not be an optimist. I have learned to be hopeful. Optimism says, well, it's going to all turn out great no matter what, because that's how it does. You don't worry about a thing because it's all going to turn out great. I don't know that. But I am hopeful because I have agency and hope. I am part of hope. I am part of hope. You are part of hope. We are here tonight. This is the solution. We are doing it right? It is not mm-hmm. something that someone else is going to do later. It is something that we are doing right now. We are right. in we are in the act of trying to save the Republic, not to be grandiose, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to save the Republic. 
And this is the cure. I have had way too many opportunities in recent years to quote Abraham Lincoln's speech at the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield 23 or 24 years before the start of the Civil War. And this is where he said that not all of the armies of Europe under the command of the Napoleon could ever lay a track in the Blue Ridge or drink a, a drop of water from the Ohio. And he said that the only way that America will ever fail is that we will fail each other and that we will we we will have to do this to ourselves. And the line that haunts is that we will either endure for all time as a nation of free men or die by suicide. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but the options remain exactly, exactly the same today. And when Lincoln said it, the clouds of civil war were still out there on the horizon, but they knew what the risks were. And I, to, to offer you a hillbilly aphorism, the best way to get good at something fast is to play for more than you can afford to lose. Right. So if we need to get good at being citizens and we need to get we need to get a lot better at being citizens and how we learn and know and stay informed and communicate has to get a lot better. Surely the events of the past five years, this constitutional stress test that the country has lived under this, the pandemic, the response to the pandemic, January 6th, the stolen election, all of that or the attempted stealing of the election, all of that stuff. If you don't look at all that and say that this could go away, then, you know, you got to think it through. You have to think it through. And I believe that the young people, the Xennials, the people who have come of age, the people who are in college now and getting out of college now, their formative shaping years were in this acid bath right? They watched the world that no offense to millennials and no offense to baby boomers, Gen X rules, the, that millennials and baby boomers in their scorched earth battle over the culture and their scorched earth battle with each other have left a lot of wreckage behind. Yeah, And it's going to be up to these kids, these young adults to pick the pieces up. And I firmly believe that they are coming into adulthood wiser and more chastened than the generation before them was because they're coming in. No, no one, if you, if I, if you and I, 20 years ago, if I would have said, I don't know, I think we're reaching a point in America where a president will try to steal a second term and try to rig the system and do all that. You would say, not you, but one would say, Chris, come on. That's crazy talk. That's never happened. We've had 200 years of peaceful transition of power. And you're just saying that because you're you're wound up about something else. And it's probably not that big of a deal. No one will say that who is no no one who is 20 now when they are 40 will say, no, oh, that's poppycock. Right. No, they'll they will know. And hopefully it will. And I I am hopeful that it will make them better custodians. It will make them this goes away. This goes away. And I think one of the things about about the danger of not understanding how fortunate we are and how what a unicorn in human history America is, how different from the world even today America is. When we forget that, we don't take good care of it. And our informational diet is a big part of how we take care of it. Yeah. The parting question is, 
What do you give advice? What advice do you give to young people considering going in to journalism? Where's the hope for them? Go do it. Find somebody who will pay you to write or or film or whatever your preferred medium is and go do it. I, I'm sorry to any journalism professors listening. You can always go back to grad school for journalism. Get a degree in something useful. I can teach you how to write a inverted paragraph, uh, inverted um, pyramid. pyramid lead, but I cannot teach you about the War of 1812. I do not have time to teach you about photosynthesis or what the Federal Reserve is. Yeah. Get a broad liberal education. Get out into the world and start doing it. Find somebody who will pay you poorly to write well and go get that education on the job. And then if you want to go back and get a master's degree later, treat yourself, that's fine, but you don't need it. What you need is to find somebody who will pay you to work and then edit you. That's the other gift that you need is you need a good editor. And so if you can find somebody who give you a little money and good editing, go there and, and go do it. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. I uh, thank you for writing this book, for stepping out and doing that and for truth-telling uh, through that vehicle, as well as through the dues work that you continue to do. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, thank you for taking the time here today. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for the platform, and thanks for the good work you guys do. On behalf of Florida Humanities, the Village Square, and those amazing streaming partners, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, hope when everyone stays safe. Thanks for submitting questions. Sorry we didn't get to them all. Thank you, Liz, for everything you do. And I hope everyone has a terrific night. Good night. What a conversation. Wow. Corey Nathan back with you. It was so interesting to hear Chris's reflections from having been political editor of a major outlet like Fox News, but now being a couple of years removed. It's interesting to hear from two guys, Chris and Skip Foster, our, the, the, our moderator, who clearly still love the news and believe in the importance of good reporting and value excellent writing. Just a couple of a, a lot of observations that caught my attention. One had to do with Chris's emphasis on localizing our focus and our efforts. Many of us tend to get wrapped up in outraged uh, about, uh, I think the way he put it, we get, we get outraged by what some stranger is doing who lives 3,000 miles away. Yet what's happening in our neighborhood, in our towns, actually affects us the most. And that goes for local journalism as well. Village Square's founder, Liz Joyner, was saying thriving local journalism can unbreak the news. I love that. And, you know, and, and we could all benefit from that. It ties into something toward the end that Chris was saying in comparing optimism to hope, that we can actually have agency and hopefulness, that we can be hopeful as we participate in the act of trying to save our republic. With that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign up box. 
Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to Chris Steyerwalt, Broken News. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.